0: Britain and america have withdrawn embassy staff from yemen amid a major terrorist plot could iran's new leadership lead to a thawing of relations with the west and gibraltar's residents call for a stronger
1: royal navy presence on the rock we do need we feel larger naval assets to send a message to spain that gibraltar is british that the waters are british and they will be for as long as the people want.
0: Yemen says it has foiled a major al-Qaeda plot to blow up oil pipelines and seize two of the country's main ports. According to the government, the plans included taking control of the al-Daba oil terminal and killing or kidnapping foreign workers. Hundreds of armoured vehicles have been deployed in the capital Sana'a, while the US and UK have withdrawn diplomats. I'm joined now by Mike Evans, security specialist writer for The Times, Middle East analyst Haji Tamourian, and of course our own defence analyst. Chris Foley, hello to all of you. Uh, Mike um, Evans, first of all, how serious a threat do you think this is?
2: Um, I'm pretty convinced it, it was a serious threat or is, remains a serious threat. I spoke to some very senior people in Washington who said, was it a serious, incredible threat? Yes, it was. Uh, so I believe them. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure whether one can believe the you know the statement from the Yemenis I mean who knows what the details of the threat were obviously the Americans thought it was going to be aimed at US embassies and the Brits thought it was going to be against the British embassy which is why they withdrew all their staff so you know the the plot as outlined by the Yemeni authorities is that they were going to attack um, an oil port Um, now that doesn't surprise me because that's obviously a target that would be of interest to someone like al-Qaeda Uh, nevertheless, we're not absolutely sure what the threat was, whether the threat still remains, and why the Americans felt it necessary to uh, urgently get rid of all their staff from from Yemen. Uh,
0: And the Yemeni government saying they contain this now, do you think that's the case?
2: Well, I think it's a bit dangerous to say that. Uh, I mean, I I think as far as I know, there are anything up to a thousand uh, al-Qaeda now in Yemen so they've they've expanded hugely from only a few hundred up to about a thousand now so they remain a a, a very big threat to the country so the current threat may be uh may have diminished somewhat but I think they need to be on alert because clearly they have a great uh, determination to do something fairly spectacular they haven't managed to do it this time I'm sure they'll have another go
0: Christopher Lee, who in Al-Qaeda is based in Yemen? The
3: emphasis of Al-Qaeda, when people imagined that that it was in the subcontinent, say, Pakistan, etc., um, shifted to the almost benign uh, sort of uh, place that Yemen became, largely because the the then ruler of Yemen, having his work cut out of controlling everybody, and there was an opportunity for al-Qaeda to grow. And with al-Qaeda there, in Arabia, as it's called, and al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, you have the new sort of focus of attention. And therefore, when you get a threat from that organisation, which is not free to go where it likes or free or whatever, and you've that threat up, you think through electronic intelligence... From the head of Al-Qaeda himself, and operations directors, so you've been listening in, you've been earwigging them, you take it seriously, especially if you remember, two of the most compulsive uh, uh, difficulties for the, for the Americans was the blowing up the, uh, of, of one embassy in East Africa, and then more recently, the attack on the consulate in Libya. And this is one of the black marks, for example, on Hillary Clinton's uh, late record. And so they take these sort of threats very seriously because
4: it's possible to do it.
0: Haji Tamorin, meanwhile, American drone attacks continue in Yemen. What effect are they having?
4: Apparently they are decimating the leadership of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But, of course, as Christopher has just said to us, this is a diffuse organization. Uh, I often think of Yemen as another failed state, really. The government is not in charge of many regions. And uh, there is also... It has to be said that the drones are very unpopular with civilians. Civilians tell us... They live in constant fear. They lose members of their own communities and they claim that for every Al-Qaeda man killed, there are more recruits for the organization. But this would happen anyway, as I said, this is one of the poorest countries in the world and central government virtually does not exist in places.
0: Mike Evans, um, is there another way to root out al-Qaeda, particularly in the light of perhaps this report, the UN report that was out yesterday, saying that although the leadership may, may be being attacked, that, 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 that new radical groups are spring up inspired by what they see as al-Qaeda's ideology?
2: Well, I mean, I think there's not really an answer to that. I mean, if uh, you know, if you stop the drone attacks and stop special operations attacks, Uh, and try and go the other end, the softer end, uh, you know, uh, the sort of the social end, uh, and and start uh, putting money into countries that are um, very poor, like Yemen. You know, that might have an effect uh, overall, but basically uh, certainly the current uh, Obama administration feels that the only way to really attack uh, this organization, which is now spread all over the place, is to go for the core leadership in in all the various places which they've been why they've been trying to uh, eliminate the the leaders in yemen and also in north africa as well as uh, in pakistan uh it's a system that has worked to the extent that they've managed to eliminate a lot of people but it's not going to uh resolve uh, the the major problem which is uh, a, a very durable uh resilient terrorist organization that's now has a number of franchises and whether there's any other route to doing this i really find it's very difficult to 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 come up with any solution uh you, you can't negotiate with these people because they're not uh willing or able or wanting to do to do anything to do with negotiation they just want to uh attack western targets how do you attack that without attacking back i'd honestly feel that the, 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 there is no real solution to this other than to continue the, the way they are
0: Christopher?
3: Here here we've got the the nux of the whole thing. Um, You can't negotiate with so-called Al-Qaeda because you don't know who to negotiate with. There is no sort of... Even with the the different rebel factions, for example, in Syria, you do know who to side with, you do know who to call. There's a second thing here which is very important. If you go back a few years when we all started talking about Al-Qaeda... One of the things we used to emphasise on this programme was that don't get an idea that Al-Qaeda is a big terrorist organisation that's running uh, big deals all the time. It is... We should still see it as an umbrella name. There are these factions that are operating and they may ring up Al-Qaeda and say, listen, we're going to do this, is that OK? And they say, yes, or whatever, or they may not. Al-Qaeda may not be running operations against the Americans or whatever. You do have these local factions. Go back. Do you remember when we were discussing Algeria and the oil terminal that got blown up and the hostages? Now, you can pin that one on al-Qaeda, but you shouldn't do it. You have to pin it on the local guy who was a bandit, who was a gunrunner, who was a kidnapper, who organised it, but soon it was an al-Qaeda name. So I think we ought to be very careful and recognise what Mike is saying, is that... You can't just do um, business with them
4: because you don't know who to business uh, to do it with. Agir, yes, I agree fully. Uh, a dozen years ago, when. The Taliban were in charge of Afghanistan and bin Laden and Zawahiri, the two leaders, were there. There was this unity of organization, but then they were dispersed in the overthrow of the Taliban government. Now, they are like a group of uh, council of elders. Uh, they might or might not have much uh, influence. Uh, you don't have to listen to them, but you can set, set yourself up a, a branch of al-Qaeda without even their permission in this place or that place.
0: Okay, uh, let's stay with the Middle East, uh, but move on now to Iran, where there's a new government of wisdom and hope, according to its newly elected president. During his inauguration speech on Sunday, Hassan Rouhani also said that countries which want the right response should use the language of respect instead of sanctions. So, is there a deal to be done with Iran? Christopher, is this a genuine thawing of relations between Iran, the US and Britain?
3: No, I don't think it is. Um, I think it's a different move. And it's a different attitude. And, you know, we have spent uh, a decade caught up with the image of uh, Ahmadinejad and and believe that everything he said was wacky, that he was almost a basket case, but he's a basket case who is sort of moving towards, so we believe, uh, nuclear weapons. So we, we take, not so much take him seriously, but we are cautious about it. I don't believe, for example, that Iran has ever been the threat to the so-called West, that it's been portrayed for so long.
0: Why do, why do you think? Uh, because I don't it's think
3: it's ever had that sort of capability. And also, it, it's, it's the sort of thing that's much more easier to control than, say, what we we're talking about, if you, uh, because it's, it's a unified state, or it's a state of, of unification anyway. So I don't think there's anything new in this. But what we have to do, we have to recognise that the new guy is taking a different approach. This is a man, for example, who did his PhD in Glasgow, who knows how we think. The important thing to remember about Iran, and nobody must ever forget this, doesn't matter how good this man is, doesn't matter what his intentions, how genuine he is, there's only one man who takes the final the decision in Iran, leader. is the supreme leader, the supreme. and it's not the president.
4: And that man is still there. He calls the shots. He's just vetoed four of the key ministries. Um, uh, this man wanted in there.
0: Indeed, uh, but he has allowed, um, I I believe, the foreign minister to be appointed, which is one the Americans like, is that right? Javad Zarif?
4: Zarif, that's right. But uh, he, uh, the foreign foreign policy remains the preserve of the supreme leader. Really, what has really changed is that because sanctions are uh, hurting Iran very badly today, um, it cannot even receive all the money it receives um, from sale of oil. The Ayatollah Khamenei might dis- might decide to ma- to save face by allowing the new chef the cabinet, his own man really, um, to uh, call new tunes. But to some extent, I do not believe he- there are any signs that the Ayatollah Khamenei, first of all, wants to give up the uh, uranium program or to be softer on uh, foreign policy to stop, in, for example, interfering in Lebanon, to stop supporting Syria in Syria.
0: Uh, uh, Mike Evans, do you think there will be any developments there? I mean, not so far the US President, the British Prime Minister, they've been positive, haven't they? But I suppose the actions will be about whether the sanctions are, are eased and whether there is uh, any movement on uranium enrichment.
2: Well, I agree. I agree with what both uh, uh, Christopher and Haja said, except that um, you know, the mood The mood is different. The words are different and the leader is different. And remember, he was elected uh, by popular vote. So there is a, uh, you know, his campaign was supported by, by a, a majority of the Iranian uh, voters. And that's important. Now, I quite agree the supreme leader is the guy who calls the shots. Nevertheless, I think uh, the new leader has indicated that he wants a different path. He wants to... Uh, he's open to negotiations, and obviously Hajir is right. It's all about sanctions. He wants to improve the economy in Iran, and sanctions are hurting, no doubt about that. So obviously he wants to put sanctions on the table and try and persuade the Americans and others that uh, he's willing to, to talk. Now, whether, whether it's all pie in the sky or whether it actually means something, we've yet to know. But I don't think we should be too pessimistic. I think we have to grasp what we can grasp but without being naive about it and uh, obviously uh, in Washington they're going to have to be very cautious before they even consider uh, talking to allies about uh, lifting sanctions. We're nowhere near that. I
4: I agree with you completely, Mike. There's hope in the air but the hope is that the Ayatollah might discover that this is a good way of saving face by allowing more freedom to this man.
3: I tell you, if you want to know if this, if this is for real or not, you have to go to Geneva and you go and talk to the International Atomic Energy Agency and ask them if they are going to get invitations to look at all the Iranian nuclear facilities and how much freedom we'll have. If you get that then you know you've got a line of progress.
0: Okay, so there may be hope uh, for Iran. Um, Tajir, what about Syria? Because you can argue that what's happening there is going to have much more immediate impact in the region.
4: Exactly. Quite interesting, indeed the Ayatollah Khamenei has just received a letter from President Bashar Assad we don't know what there is in there but gratitude of course Iran since January has given Bashar Assad up to 12 billion dollars of help as well as military as well as helping uh, allowing is proxy army in the Lebanon, the Hezbollah, to go there and fight for President Assad. Um, I think that um, more hope possibly comes from the Saudis and the Russians. The Saudis have sent Prince Bandar to Moscow to plead with pres- President Putin and offered apparently up to $15 billion of bribes to the Russians to abandon the uh, the government. And if President Putin decides there is no future, uh, 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 for this government, um, he might decide, well, I'll take the bribe and I would not burn all my bridges with few future Syria.
0: Christopher? There's a
3: meeting next week in Washington and it's between the foreign minister. That's the, the one
0: that is going ahead, yeah, isn't the it? The one
3: that is going ahead. Foreign minister and the defense ministers of both the United States and of Russia. There, they will have to have a hammer out and we will hear from a result of that what Americans believe the Russians will be doing. Russians, in effect, will be in Syria, supporting Syria for the near future. Saudis may put up a $15 billion sort of bribe on them. That is peanuts from what they think they can get out of it.
0: All right, Christopher Hajiev, stay with us. But Mike Evans, security specialist at The Times, thanks for joining us today.
1: Sit Rep
5: with Kate
0: Still to come, what made the late Sir Sandy Woodward such a fascinating admiral and why August is a popular month for starting wars. the First Minister of Gibraltar, Fabian Picardo, has accused the Spanish government of using border checks as a chokehold on the territory. David Cameron says he's had a constructive phone conversation with his Spanish counterpart over the row, but the PM warned Mariano Rajoy there's a real risk of harm to relations between the two countries if he fails to calm the situation. There have been sporadic border delays for the past 10 days. BFBS reporter James Hurst is there and sent this report.
5: On the face of it, the border queues are because of concrete blocks dropped into the sea by the Gibraltar government to make an artificial reef and encourage sea life. Spain says Gibraltar doesn't have any territorial waters and that the reef is blocking its fishermen. The Gibraltar government says fishing rights are just a red herring and that the Spanish are really trying to push over sovereignty of the rock. These sort of disputes are not unusual. What perhaps is a bit more unusual is it getting to the point where the Spanish and British Prime Ministers hold a hasty phone conversation, as they did yesterday. Mariano Rajoy told David Cameron the border controls are to stop smuggling. David Cameron told him the delays weren't acceptable and that sovereignty isn't up for negotiation. For British military personnel living and working here, it's an inconvenience, but they are not directly involved in the dispute. Gibraltar's government, however, would like to see a British show of force, though they've not made any formal request. Deputy Chief Minister Dr Joseph Garcia.
1: We do need, we feel, larger naval assets to send a message to Spain that Gibraltar is British, that the waters are British and they will be for as long as the people want it.
5: Your First Minister has accused the Spanish Prime Minister of sabre-rattling, of uh, talking about something from the Franco era. Is not suggesting you need more Royal Navy presence also sabre-rattling?
1: Well, no, it's not. You see, what's happening here is that you have a a nation state of 34 million people bullying a small country made up of 30,000 British citizens, and that cannot be allowed. allowed. We have been British since the Royal Marines took Gibraltar in 1704. We are proud of our traditions and of our links with the British military, with the Navy, the Air Force, and the Army. And what Spain has to learn is that what we have learned, certainly from our British culture and heritage, is not to give in to bullies. You stand up to them. So, what
5: is the way to solve this? Because Spain clearly think they have some rights here.
1: Well, the, the, if they create border queues which are seven hours long. They are impeding and obstructing the rights of EU nationals to move through an EU border freely. That is a fundamental freedom of the European Union. We are taking detailed statistics of every single delay. We are getting down cases uh, reports of people who have actually been affected by them. And if this continues, we are certainly more than willing to consider mounting a legal challenge to these delays. And it's interesting to know that yesterday... The European Commission has announced that the delays have to be proportionate and that they're calling Spain to a meeting in September or October at the border to look into them. Are you happy to actually talk to solve this? We, the problem you see that the Spanish government has turned its back on dialogue. There used to be a forum... Before they came into power in December 2011, where Britain, the UK, and Gibraltar sat down to discuss issues affecting Gibraltar, issues which concerned the three parties. When the new Spanish government was elected at that time, at the end of 2011, they withdrew from the forum. So Spain left the negotiating table, or the discussion table, they walked out of the room, and the UK... and and Gibraltar are still waiting at the table. The, 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 The Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary have made it very clear that the way forward is a trilateral forum for dialogue. Gibraltar is willing to take part and to continue the trilateral forum for dialogue. Spain has turned its back on dialogue.
5: Spain does have the right to impose border checks. Like Britain, Gibraltar is not part of the Schengen free travel area. But those checks do have to be proportionate, and the government here is collecting data with a view to legal action if the queues carry on. The European Commission has proposed its own route to solve this, a technical meeting at the border crossing, but not until next month or even October. If the problems continue that long, diplomatic relations will already be in a significantly worse state.
0: James Hurst reporting from Gibraltar. Christopher, there are flare-ups every so often on the border, aren't there? Why now?
3: Um, well, I mean, the, the most cynical attitude I've heard um, is that it's all about property taxes, it's about a government in in Madrid that is hard pushed, it's got sort of whatever it is, 27% unemployment, etc. And it's always a question of, uh, as George Orwell would know, uh, what you do is the sound of gunfire and put out more flags. But there is a very real thing here, isn't there? And that is that this has been going on for so long and every so often it flares up. An interesting part of it, though, in support of it... Yeah, in support of it, the Argentinians are sort of doing the same mutterings now about the Falklands again because
0: they've gone to the UN, haven't they, uh, again claiming their sovereignty rights.
3: And the UN will support it. And the UN support it because the UN has a resolution on the table which says clear out all these colonial uh, differences. The Americans will support it also, but for the most obscure reason, as far as we're concerned, but for them a direct reason. In the next American election, it will be decided, they believe, on the demography, in other words, nationalities. The biggest voters at the next American presidential elections will be Spanish speakers, and that's why they're supporting both the Argentinians... And also the Spanish. Casio
4: Tamoria. I, I must say, I know absolutely nothing about Gibraltar, but I do know one thing juicy. King, <laughs> Philip, King Philip II of Spain gave Gibraltar to Britain in return for Menorca, and I think they better accept it. And do you know now. that's where Nelson
3: lost his eye? Menorca. <laughs> Is that right. Yeah. Uh, not, not at sea, but in, in a land battle no, in Menorca. Now no, it's a beach. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and on that note, we'll just leave it there for now. This is BFBS. Sit, rap. Admiral Sir John Sandy Woodward, the commander of the Royal Navy Task Force that retook the Falkland Islands in 1982, died earlier this week. He was 81. The Defence Secretary, Philip Hammond, commended Admiral Woodward on his magnificent achievement and said he'd be remembered by many as the Navy's fighting admiral. Major General Julian Thompson commanded three commando brigades during the Falklands War.
4: Ever since the war was over, he and I used to have friendly spats from time to time. But I admired him enormously, because he was highly courageous, he was very cool, he was very brave, and he did the right thing.
0: Christopher, he did the right thing.
3: He did the right thing, but let's not not tie Sandy Woodward into 82 and the the Falklands campaign. He wasn't a one-war admiral. Um, I knew Sandy Woodward for, I don't know, 30 years and we used to, he used to come, when I was at college, he used to come and talk to my graduate students. And he'd bring along a two a glass pieces, piece of glass, which he'd scratched on. And he called them his war matrix. And he'd put one down and he'd say to them, right, that's, that's, the, that's the West, that's the East... Uh, now, how are you going to start a war and how are you going to control it? And so they'd come up with all these theories. And he put the second one down. And he said, now I have to start thinking about it because it's all about individuals. And the task is not to go to war, etc. And he turned them round completely. And he turned the Navy around in a big way. Don't forget that he got the gig to go and command the sea task Force, not the whole task force. That was done at Northwood. The sea task Force, because he'd been exercising the very thing that he always campaigned for and that is if you've got a navy the reason you've got a navy is two things one the army can't get there and secondly is because the navy can always pull out once it's done the job and that was his whole thinking and if more people had listened to him we might never have had a Falklands war but don't think of him just just as a one war admiral when he became a commander in chief he was inspirational to a lot of people not because he'd had a good war but because he had very, very, very sharp thinking. Every time I said something, he said rubbish. <laughs> I was
0: going to ask you, know you if you worst... worked directly with him at and all. You... Yeah, I did.
3: And do you know what was um, annoying about it? Well, I suppose it wasn't... He was right. <laughs> uh, but I was thinking conventionally. And he taught me not to think conventionally, always to have a second matrix, which you throw over the piece of glass, and said, now, that changes all the rules. And he was a man who knew the rules would be changed.
0: Well, traditionally, August is seen by journalists and newsrooms as the silly season. Parliament's on holiday, which means news and current affairs can be, can be thin on the ground. But despite block leave for many of those serving in the forces, it's not always a quiet month for the military. Christopher, why is that? Well it's, it's
3: traditionally I mean if you you can go back almost to the beginning of the time when we we split the year into twelve months. August, that period around August, always the start of when you campaigned. And one of the reasons for this in, in past times, you didn't fight wars in dirty weather. You didn't fight in the winter. And this was up until twentieth century. That you didn't have a successful war. One of the reasons, but it really depends
0: where you are in the world, though, doesn't
3: it? Uh, yeah, but but basically, basically, you—it's very difficult in in European terms, very difficult to shift logistics around, armour divisions around, etc., etc. But there was another side of it, and this was uh, actually remarkable. I remember they used to have exercises against the Soviet Union forces, and they weren't, but you know, they—I they, think they were orange. We were was jolly good blue, and the principle was this. The Soviet Union, in a group of Soviet forces, Germany, 31 divisions, would send out the 16th Shock Army from Magdeburg or some such borough. And in four days, it would be at the Channel Ports. And it would always happen at the first end of the first week in August. And the reason that the Soviet Union used to sort of work its exercises up to this, they assumed NATO had gone on block leave. <sighs> And nobody, it would be nobody, nobody to call up and say, I, "I think the Russians are coming for serious this time."
4: Hadjia, wars in August in Kuwait. At this time of year, tem- temperatures often are between forty-five degrees and fifty degrees. And yet, um, twenty-three years ago and f- six days ago, uh, Saddam Hussein suddenly pounced on Kuwait on the second of August and uh, started that war. And because as someone Kurdish-born hating him, I was hoping this might be the end of him, but he still lasted another 13 years. But it was also
3: true, isn't it? See, uh, Kate, you said you know, well, it's, it's, it's not cold and horrible everywhere in the, in, in, in the world. The, the truth is, uh, if it's boiling hot, 45 degrees, says Hajir, uh, that is a time to go against your enemy. Who is lethargic? Who can't fight, <laughs> and he can't be efficient. Especially Kuwaitis. <laughs> and that's the definitely Let's anti-Quiti. not
0: go there, Haji. Oh, no. um, <laughs> just, just moving on to something that's uh, popped up in the papers this week is it a mystery of the Minden Roses in Chicago. Yes. Um, somebody, can someone tell us a little more about this story?
3: Okay, there is a battle, a Seven Year War. A Seven Years War. You have to go back to the eighteenth century, right? And that was when America was still the, uh, belonged to Britain. Mm. And Seven Years War was really all about the war between with with France, and we were going to knock the French out of India it's a consolidating now the French were also in North Africa uh, in in North America rather in parts of North America and there was the Battle of Minden it was one of the great decisive battles still commemorated
0: today by the armed forces
3: still commemorated by the armed forces today but what's happening is that somebody is turning up with some roses and they're putting once a year at the Chicago consulate British consulate in Chicago and then going away and just so you know, basically remember Minden. Now it is supposedly being somebody who a benefactor, and he's ringing up into Flora, and he's <laughs> saying, you know, I want, I want, I want a dozen, a dozen, a dozen pink. <laughs> uh, on the doorstep in the morning usual message now it's the quirky thing and i Indeed. tell you you can go back in history and even modern
4: history and find this sort of thing happening all around the world i have Had a you... theory i have a theory I... this must be a direct descendant and one of the of the heroes of that war and namesake as well he remembers himself
0: you, I'm, i was fascinated to know if you were going to commemorate something secretly every year what would you do and how would you do it
4: Oh, uh, send a bunch of red roses to one of my former lovely girls.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not, not, not the answer I was expecting. I was expecting some kind of de- defence kind of answer. Actually, I have a
3: theory about the guy that sends these roses. Uh, my grandpa was in the King's uh, own Scottish Borderers, right? The King's own Scottish Borderers were very successful at Minden. It's got to be, except there are a dozen roses. A good Scot wouldn't have sent a dozen. How many? Six. <laughs>
0: <Christopher>. <laughs> and there we must leave it. My thanks to all of our guests this week. So if you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFPS Sitrep. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, BFPS.com slash SITREP. No offence intended to any Scottish people listening. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon.